Well, Sodom and Gomorrah have a reputation uh, for being a place of divine judgment. Uh, This is a place in uh, artwork, literature, even in the Bible, uh, where everybody points to as a singular example of the kind of judgment that God rains down on sin. Indeed, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is apparent. This is debated these days um, uh, in uh, an environment where uh, people want Christians to embrace the homosexual lifestyle. Uh, there are many uh, so-called homosexual Christians who argue that the sin of Sodom wasn't homosexuality. The sin of Sodom was a failure of hospitality. Um, but what is obvious on the face of the text, what just right on the surface of the text, is that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged because of sins of flagrant sexual immorality. Uh, that verdict is repeated throughout the passages of Scripture, sometimes mentioning the pride of the Sodomites. But what is most consistently repeated both in the text and in cross-references in the Scripture is the flagrant sexual immorality of the Sodomites. And because of their immorality, judgment was rained down on them. This is the reputation that Sodom and Gomorrah have, a place of judgment, and the reputation isn't undeserved. In Jeremiah twenty-three fourteen, the prophet says, But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen their hands as evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. In 2 Peter 2, 6, it says, God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. In Jude 1.7, it says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Those are just a few examples. There's other examples where the Bible says Sodom and Gomorrah are a place of unrelenting judgment and even an example of the eternal judgment that awaits all of those who are guilty of sexual immorality. I don't mean to minimize that Sodom is an example of judgment. It's, it's, it is a, an example of judgment, but there's more to Sodom and the account in the Bible than the judgment we see there. I want for us to see that God's work at Sodom is actually a supreme example of his mercy. I want us to assume that the judgment uh, that is apparent was uh, just and deserved But I also want us to look beyond that to the mercy of God at Sodom. Though we often think of Sodom in terms of judgment, there is much reason to see God's mercy at Sodom. What is mercy? It's actually a hard thing to define, really. Um, uh, There's four or five words in the Bible, Hebrew and Greek, that all get translated some way, shape, form, or fashion as mercy. And those words, in my estimation, defy easy definition. Uh, Some contexts uh, move the definition that that many people use in a little bit of a different direction. Um, And yet I think when you put it all together, it's not unfair to say that mercy is what happens when God helps you when you're in trouble, even though you don't deserve it. Mercy is 
God helping you when you're in trouble, even though you don't deserve it. I think that's more or less the biblical idea. One example of this, just in one passage of the Bible, is Psalm 51, verse 1, where David, after his affair with Bathsheba, says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, out of your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. David is coming as a guilty man in need of help that he does not deserve and God helps him. That's one example of mercy. We see other examples of that kind of mercy here in Genesis 18 and 19. Let me talk about a few examples of mercy here in the destruction of Sodom. First example of mercy at Sodom is that God destroyed the city. Now, I'm I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to play fast and loose here. I said, there's judgment and there's mercy. The first thing I want to say is that the judgment against Sodom and its destruction is a kind of mercy. Look at verse 4 of 19. Before they lay down the mid of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Everybody in Sodom is wicked. Everybody in Sodom that is surrounding the house is guilty of sexual immorality and unnatural desire. Every person. That makes it puzzling to me when you look down at verse 13. The angels say to Lot, we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. That's an odd passage. Who's giving the outcry? Who's being sinned against if everybody is complicit in the sin? Who's doing that? Well, the people who are committing the sins are the victim of their own sins. Do you see? This is exactly the idea that the Apostle Paul gets at in Romans chapter 1. Verses 26 to 27, when he says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That last phrase means that when you do what homosexuals do, that is judgment on its own. You re- th- that act is a judging act. When, you do, when homosexuals do what they want to do, they experience the pain and the harm of their sin, even though they don't realize that that's what's happening. They think it's what they want, and it's bad for them, which is why, interestingly, just a few verses later in Romans 2, 5, it says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Every person in Sodom that loved homosexual sex, every time they did it, they're just storing up wrath for themselves. And God is kind to put an end to it so that they have less to give account for on the final day of judgment. 
God is merciful to stop it and to stop it quickly. It's interesting. You read through this and you keep saying, he says, up, quick, go, up, quick, go, up, quick, go. Three different times that sort of formula happens. The angels are trying to get Lot out. And then that's odd because in verse 21 and 22, it says, after he asked to go to Zoar, he says, behold, I grant you this favor also that you'll not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly for I can do nothing until you arrive there. What's the rush? What's, if, if he can't do anything until Lot gets to the city, then what's the rush? I think God's being merciful to the Sodomites to end their sin before more judgment can take place. The first way we see God's mercy at Sodom is in his destruction of the city. Second way we see God's mercy at Sodom is that God ultimately promised to spare the entire city for the sake of ten. He has this strange negotiation with Lot, which we'll talk about in a moment. And at the end of the negotiation, God says, okay, I won't sweep away the whole city if I find just ten people. If there's ten righteous people, I won't do it. That is a scandalous amount of mercy. That's scandalous mercy when you understand what we just talked about. He's going to let the whole city persist in their sin and accrue judgment if he can find just 10 people who are righteous? This shows God's scandalous love for righteousness. It shows his patient long-suffering. It shows his desire to be merciful to his own people, even in the midst of a crooked and a corrupt generation. It's a scandalous amount of mercy. A whole city that is persisting in wickedness would be spared if we can find 10. Here's a third example of God's mercy at Sovereign, at Sodom. God went further than his own oath, sparing four people from the destruction. God said, um, I won't destroy the whole city if we can find 10. Well, there weren't 10. There weren't close to 10. The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Everybody. There were not ten righteous people in Sodom, but God spared Lot's family. He was merciful. He decided to destroy the city, but go beyond his promise and extract Lot's family from the Holocaust. He did this in spite of their delays. This is verses 15 and 16. They've told him, we're going to destroy the city. And in verse 15, it says, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Can you imagine? But he lingered. You've got angels saying, listen, go. We're going to destroy the place. What's, what's he doing? He lingers. It's absolutely crazy. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters. They grabbed him by the hand. And it says, the Lord being merciful to him. After they told him to go, he still didn't go. And so then they, he got up the ante even more and grabbed him and threw him out of the city. It's unbelievable mercy. Mercy in spite of the delay. Mercy in spite of the doubt. This is verses 17 to 22. He brought them out and said, escape for your life. Don't look back. Escape to the hills. And Lot said, oh no, I, I can't 
I can't escape to the hills. I won't be able to bear it. Send me that little city over there, that little place, Zoar. Isn't it a little place? And he says, okay, go. We'll leave that alone. But just hurry because we can't do anything until you get there. In spite of the delays, in spite of the doubts, God spares Lot's family even though it's not 10 people. So Abraham did not outdo God in mercy. This is one of the points. Abraham's not more merciful than God in this negotiation. God goes above and beyond what Abraham requested. Here's another example, a fourth example of God's mercy at Sodom. God spared four. He pulled four out of the city, Lot, his wife, and the two daughters. But there were no righteous people in Sodom. When, When God pulled Lot's family out of Sodom, he didn't pull four righteous people out. There were no righteous people in Sodom. Lot was not righteous. Lot was not righteous. This is, it's interesting because in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, it says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So I just said there wasn't anybody righteous. And Peter says in his second epistle that Lot was a righteous man. So um, I'm pointing you to 2 Peter because I think those two things exist together. We have to understand the difference between a concept and a doctrine. Uh, Just because a word is used, it doesn't mean that it refers to our doctrinal understanding of the term. So every time the word salvation is used or saved is used, it's not talking about the doctrine of salvation. There's, there could be a different concept of salvation. So in the Old Testament, we read, you know, David will send his armies and protect the Israelites, and the, the verdict will be God saved his people that day. It doesn't mean the Israelites repented of their sins and trusted Jesus. It means that there's a kind of salvation that's different than the doctrine of salvation. Um, the... The righteousness in Second Peter is a concept of righteousness that's different than our doctrine of Jesus' imputed righteousness over our sin. It's a comparative righteousness. He wasn't as bad. He wasn't doing those, those kinds of things um, that the folks with unnatural desire at Sodom were doing. It's relative righteousness in Second Peter. But Lot was not righteous. And this is true right on the face of the text. Verse 8, Lot was ready to throw his daughters to a bunch of gang rapists. Can you imagine? I mean, I've got a daughter. Every time I read this, my blood runs cold. Here, don't, don't, don't worry with the strangers. I've got two daughters in there. They've never known a man. Let me bring them out. Ready to cast them. I mean, can you imagine the daughters on the other side of the door? Lot's wife was not righteous. Lot was not righteous. Lot's wife was not righteous. She received the command not to look back in chapter 19. And later on in chapter 19, verse 26, she turned. Whether it's because of longing for her home or curiosity about what was happening, she disobeyed the command of the angel. She looked back and verse 26 says she became a pillar of salt. 
Lot was not righteous. Lot's wife was not righteous. Lot's daughters were not righteous. This horrifying account in at the end of the passage, verses 30 to 38, where the two daughters conspire to make their father drunk and go to bed with him uh, so that they can be pregnant. This is... Uh, all of this behavior is forbidden. Intoxication is, forgive, is forbidden in the Bible. Incest is forbidden in the Bible. Fornication is forbidden in the Bible. Sex outside of marriage. I mean, they're breaking the law left and right here. This is a supreme example of unrighteousness, which Lot is complicit in, by the way. Sometimes you read commentaries on this, and sometimes people say, well, Lot wasn't really to blame for it. Um, he was drunk. He didn't know what was going on. Well, um, let's not do that, all right? Uh, we want to hold people accountable if they get drunk and fornicate. We don't want to get them off the hook because they were drunk. Here's the point. The final example of mercy that I want to point out this morning in Sodom is that everyone who escaped Sodom was just as guilty as the people who did not escape Sodom. They're just guilty of different things and they were recipients of mercy. God is merciful at Sodom. And, and it makes me wonder why. Why such mercy on such a wicked place? Not one person righteous. Why such mercy? Mercy means God helps you when you're in trouble, even though you don't deserve it. But not everyone gets mercy, right? Lot and his daughters got away, and nobody else did. So why Lot? Why do some people get mercy and other people not? One way the Bible answers that question is is in Exodus 33, 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. One answer to the question is um, God gives mercy to who he wants to give mercy to. And he doesn't give mercy to people he doesn't want to give mercy to. And because he's sovereign, he doesn't have to. And if mercy is required, it's not mercy anymore. If mercy is required, then you deserve it. And it's not undeserved. So it's not mercy when you're talking about something else. So in order for mercy to be mercy, it has to be sovereignly distributed and God gets to decide. So that's one answer. God gives it to who he wants and he doesn't give it to who he wants. But I think we can say more about that because that understanding creates a dilemma. And the dilemma, I'll I'll speak very personally. Here's my dilemma over that understanding of mercy, which is right. But I have this dilemma. I'm in trouble. I need help. And I can't do anything to deserve the help. But I want the help. So how do I get it? If, If I want the help, I know I need the help, but I can't do anything to get the help. How do I get it? Well, God tells us something about this. Let's look back at chapter 18 and this negotiation here. God says, I'm going to go down to see whether they've done all together according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I'll know. And it says, verse 22, the men turned from there and went towards Sodom But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So Abram's like, 
He's, they're walking off, but he's still standing there. Abraham doesn't think the conversation's over. And then this negotiation happens. What's going on with that? Is, is, does Abraham have some sort of theoretical concern about ten people at Sodom? Is, is he, does he have some sort of theological debate with himself that maybe God isn't being as righteous as he needs to be? No. Abraham's thinking about his nephew Lot. That's what Abraham's thinking about. Lot, who we first hear about in Genesis 12, is the only family member outside of Sarah that goes with Abraham to the promised land. We further read as we go along that Lot follows Abraham down into Egypt for all those adventures, follows him back up north into the promised land. When they are too big for each other, they separate, uh, but it's very clear that they separate in love. It's just a practical necessity that their herds are too big and they have to go their separate ways. Lot gets in trouble. When Abraham hears that Lot is in trouble, Abraham forms an army to go rescue his nephew and fights for him and gets him back to rescue him. Abraham loves Lot. And he does not want Lot to be destroyed. The negotiation isn't about anything theoretical. He's trying to figure out how low God will go so his nephew can be spared. And if you think I'm reasoning through that incorrectly, look at verse 29 of chapter 19. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Maybe Abraham thought he was being real slick with the Lord, the art of the deal and whatnot. But God knew. God knew he was concerned about Lot, and God gave Abraham what he wanted, even though he didn't ask directly for it. He went through this negotiation. That means God had mercy on Lot because God was in covenant with Abraham Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. God's in covenant with Abraham and the man with whom he was in covenant asked for mercy. That's why Lot got mercy. He's in covenant with a covenant head and the covenant head asks for mercy. And he got it even though he didn't deserve it. Now, one thing that's interesting about this is look at, um, look at verses 27 to 28. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. We read about Lot and Abraham sojourning together in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 13 and 14. And we see Abraham's concern for Lot in Genesis 18. There is no more record in the Bible of Abraham seeing Lot again. In fact, it says in chapter 20, verse 1, from there Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh. He went south from where he was. Abraham didn't ever see Lot. When Abraham looked at the scorched earth that was Sodom and Gomorrah, he saw judgment. And he thought God had not answered his prayer. And he did not know and didn't know until he died, presumably, that Lot had been spared. 
I think that's sort of a parable of how we look at this passage. We look at the passage and see judgment, but we need to have eyes to see that beyond that scorched earth, beyond the smoldering flames of the valley, there was mercy that Abraham didn't know about. We need to let that humble us, lest we look around and we see judgment and no mercy. We need to realize God is being merciful even when we're not aware of it. Why did God do this? What was the goal of God's mercy at Sodom? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons why he did what he did, but we're told one thing. We're told one thing very clearly in the text. Look at verse 36, chapter 19. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father, The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. Out of the mercy of the escape from Sodom, uh, a guy named Moab is born. He's born in great sin. He's born in the midst of drunkenness and fornication and incest, but he's born. And that Moab, as you read through the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you find out that he later causes the people of Israel a whole lot of trouble, him and his descendants. But from his line, from this incestuous, adulterous, drunken affair, is ultimately going to come a very righteous woman named Ruth. And Ruth is going to marry a righteous man named Boaz. And they are going to have a great, 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 great grandson named Jesus. And from that Jesus, the whole world gets mercy. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, this marvelous passage. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God spared the wicked people of Sodom, allowed them to persist in their wicked act because of his greater goal of producing a Messiah that would extend mercy to all of us. And that passage we just read in Ephesians 2 says, all of us who get mercy, we're guilty too. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. No spiritual vital signs. That that passage teaches that God doesn't give mercy to the people with the good, clean, little Christian sins. God only gives mercy to dead people. Dead people, like the Sodomites. Dead people, like Lot and his daughters. The only way to get mercy 
is to be a vile sinner. We live in a world that is every bit, every bit, as full of wickedness as Sodom was. And we look at that world full of sin, everybody, I mean, homosexual, not even sex, homosexual marriage is in the news. That's not going away. That's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until one day the Lord will sweep it away. He will. But right now we live in that world that's just as bad and we shake our heads at it as we should. But we need to be careful when we shake our heads because the Christian assessment of Sodom in this passage is a lot like the Christian assessment of America. We look at it and we find judgment when we ought to see mercy. I think sometimes if we're honest, it makes us feel good to look at the Sodomites and their sin and to, to look at the Sodomites in Genesis and to look at the Sodomites in America and see their sin and grunt. Mm. Mm. I think it makes us feel good to know that we're not doing that. We're not doing those bad things. But we ought to spend some time looking at Lot and his merciful escape and cry as we see ourselves in him. We are guilty people, you and me. We are guilty people in a guilty generation. And we are saved by mercy alone. That's it. We're no better than anybody on the news arguing for homosexual marriage. We are no better, just as dead. Just like Lot, we are snatched out by the scruff of the neck. All that we see here will be swept away. And we will escape the flames, not because we like heterosexual sex, but because God was mercy, merciful. God is merciful to us, not because we're good, but because we have a covenant head who prayed for us. Look at John 17. John 17, starting in verse 9. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus Christ, our covenant Lord, prays this to his Father. I am praying for them. You know who's thinking about you? You know that? I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. When God sweeps this whole thing away, when God finally has enough and this brief little life is over and the sin of America is finally judged and it's all swept away in fire and brimstone, we will be looking at it saved by the scruff of our neck because we've trusted in a Christ 
who prayed this for us. This prayer that he prayed with you in his mind is what will bail you out. We have received mercy from a Christ who has prayed for us and today always lives to make intercession for us. That's what gets us out. That's what saves us. Mercy and mercy alone. Let's pray. Father, help us to see all that is in Genesis 18 and 19. Help us to see your judgment and fear it. Help us to see the sin and fear it. But Father, guard your people from thinking we're different. Guard us from thinking we're something special. The only thing that makes us special is that we are recipients of mercy. You, in your good and sovereign will, have made us objects of your affection. And Father, from the bottom of our hearts, We are overwhelmed with gratitude that our covenant Lord would pray such a prayer for us and spare us from the flames. Help us to live today as those saved by mercy and mercy alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.